Hello, I'm Hannah. And I'm Mike, a.k.a. Dad. And you're listening to Everything I Know, I Learned from Dad. In this podcast, my dad and I, and sometimes my sister Maddie, share our perspective on some of life's most valuable lessons. A lot of what my dad taught me didn't always make sense growing up, but today I attribute my successful transition to adulthood to his guidance, and we're here to share his wisdom with you. So, whether you're a young adult or a parent, we think you'll find value in our stories, and we're glad you're here. Hello, hello. Happy Wednesday. We are here for part two of our home buying and home ownership series. This could be the last part. This could be followed by a third part. Who knows? We're going with the flow here. But last week we talked about why you might buy a home. We talked a little bit about my story and why I desire home ownership with my fiance. And we talked a little bit about what some costs associated with the upfront process of buying the house and costs that are, that come with that. And we talked about some of the trade-offs, but we've left a lot unsaid when it comes to the process of home buying. So today we're going to focus on that timeline, the steps you can expect along the way. And I have some questions about the first couple of steps in the process, because that's where I'll be broaching shortly. So I guess we should start by talking about the whole process from end to end. What does it look like? How long could it take? And like, do things need to go in a certain order? Like how, how does that all work? This is where I don't know very much. Um, So there's a part of the process that the time it takes is a function of how long you need to find the place that you love. Yeah. For some people that's a day for others. It can be a year right? That's, that's that. But once you get to the point where you are ready to make an offer and that offer is accepted, you're typically looking at somewhere between 30 and 60 days before you're in that house. Okay. That's why people say, oh, I purchased a house today, but oh, we don't close until 45 right. days from now. Yeah. Got it. And closing is the, or another term uses passing papers. You're basically closing means you're, it's the legal transfer of ownership from one to the other and it's at that point you get the keys and you move in i also think you know we talked about the end of last week's episode about how the moment where it really hit you was when you like walked into the house i think for me it's going to be signing the papers and be like and getting it's a daunting experience and there's a lot of papers a lot of you sign and you sign your 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 hand will be tied although nowadays things have changed a lot um especially with COVID where everything's being done remotely. I just sold the home that I grew up in and all I did was, and and it's mostly a buyer who does a lot of signing, not the seller. But the fact of the matter is now they've come up with a system and it used to always be in the same room, right? You had the the buyer, the seller, the buyer's attorney, the, the mortgage company, they were all there and the whole thing transacted because you have to give a check, a giant check to the seller. (laughs) <laughs> right right the mortgage the company bank. comes with a yeah. big check yeah and then the lawyers you know have the deposit you made or the down payment you made in escrow and they, they go to the seller um but nowadays it's it's just done you just sign 
a document that gives your lawyer power of attorney. And the so the buyer's lawyer might have power of attorney and the seller's lawyer might have buyer power of attorney. And then the two attorneys just do things remotely. And then you kind of hear about it afterwards. And so I don't know if it's the same as it always used to be. Things have changed a lot, yeah. but it used to be you, you ultimately, there are a lot of documents to be signed. And I found it really funny that one of the documents you had to sign was the document confirming that you are the person you say you are, among other things. <laughs> I uh, do think, though, that like a room with at least six to eight people all watching you sign would be very intimidating. But the whole idea of like either attorney doing it for you or you doing things electronically, it becomes like less real almost. Like in yeah, this virtual world, public speaking feels so different because you can't really see all of the faces of the people you're talking to. Or right. like when you swipe a credit card, you're not really handing over the cash. So it doesn't feel as real. So right. I guess- Yeah, so when I sold my mother's home, I, I gave the lawyer power of attorney. And then the day of the closing, I got an email at like 11 a.m. said, you're done. Your house is sold. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, as a buyer, we're, we're talking about being buyers. Yeah. Um, so we know that the actual process of finding the home that you want to purchase could take anywhere from a day to a year or more, depending yeah. what the market looks like, depending on how realistic your expectations are and what's out there and, and all that stuff. And what you can afford. And what you can that. afford. Yeah. So I guess I know there's some upfront pre-qualifying stuff you, you have to do before you can even start looking. And so what is that and how long does yeah. that take? So, I, you know, there's two things you have to, I guess, decide. One, one is where you want to look mm -hmm. and then what you can afford. And they're both very important. You know, there's an old adage about real estate. Um, the, most, the three most important things about real estate is location, location, and location. <laughs> and to a great extent, that's really true. That's true in terms of, you know, what community do you want to live in, but also where your house is. Like if you're going to raise kids and you can be on a dead end street or you can be where your house is backed up to the woods or something like that, those kinds of things can be really important, even more important than the house itself, because you can change the house over time. You can't change the location. Other considerations about location is, you know, what are the schools like if you're going to raise a family? What are the taxes like? You'd be surprised how big a difference you can see from one town to the next in terms of the real estate taxes. Oh, yeah. So you really have to be, you have to give, you have to do some research. You got to give some thought. Where do you want to be? And then there's the question of what you can afford. So location, location, location isn't necessarily the same thing repeated three times. They kind of all represent something a little different. No, they, they, it, <laughs> <laughs> the point is location is everything in real yeah. estate, yeah. bottom line. Yeah. So I know where I'm targeting. I have a general vicinity community area. Yeah. Now what? Okay. Oh, I have to figure out what I afford. What I can yeah. afford. You said that. Oh, yeah. also commute, by the way, can be, a, yeah. you know, as part of location is like, boy, how, how much time do you want to spend in the car? But also the location is tied to the cost. Like the closer you get to Boston, the more expensive it's going to be. And the farther away you get from Boston, the less expensive it's going to be. So location is also tied to affordability. That is true. That is true. Okay. So affordability, the best way to talk about this is really to think about it in terms of how the banks think about it, because ultimately they're only going to lend, they're only going to lend you so much money and it's based on your income. Assuming you don't have a ton of money sitting around, which could go towards the house or serve as security against a mortgage. Uh, you know, certainly first time buyers are generally those who 
basically scrape up enough money for a down payment and then have to buy, you know, go to the limit on what they can afford. Right. And so you need to know what that number is. And not only for your own sake, but a realtor who's going to help you find a home typically wants to know what you can afford before they spend the time with you. Mm. Right. So they're either going to ask for a pre-qualifying letter from a bank or in many cases, they might just ask you some information that seems very personal, mm-hmm. um, but you have to provide it because their time is extremely valuable and they don't want to waste it on someone who's shopping for something they're never going to be able to buy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's just, as, it's just as good for your own time as theirs that you know upfront what you can afford. And a pre-qualification, at least as I understand it, it's a letter that says from a bank that says what you can afford based on what you told them, not what they verified. Right. So it, it doesn't carry a, I mean, it's important assuming you don't lie that that number be known, but ultimately you need to know what you can afford. And for most people, I suppose it's actually not that hard to figure out uh, assuming you don't have a complicated financial life. You know, if you have a salary and uh, you know, you don't have, a lot of other complicating factors. The math is not that hard and I can mm-hmm. tell you what it is. Um, people who are on commission, that gets complicated. People who are on, who whose income is based on bonuses heavily, that can complicate things. Entrepreneurship. Uh, entrepreneurs, people who are on their own business. These all are complicating factors. But if you're just, I don't mean just like it's a bad thing. If you're simply an employee at a firm, you've been there at least a couple of years, your salary is pretty predictable. The math is relatively straightforward. Mm -hmm. I will say that there are always margins of, uh, I won't say margins of error. There, There are, ultimately what happens is a mortgage company has what's called an underwriter. The underwriter reviews all the information provided and has been verified and at the end of the process says yes or no Mm. those underwriters operate with certain guidelines some of which are maybe government regulated but in some cases it's just based on their judgment and so different underwriters maybe have different levels of uh, flexibility Um, so if you are on the margin, it, it could actually be affected. Your, your outcome could be affected by the underwriter. But the general rule of thumb, if we're going to go there now, is that the ongoing costs of your home, and those are four things. It's called PITI, principal, interest, taxes, insurance. and insurance. Got it. Those four things represent the costs of ownership that the bank cares about. Mm-hmm. So principal, when, when you take out a mortgage, you're, and we've talked about loans already, right? When you pay back a loan, every payment includes some part principal and some part interest. So that's the P and the I, principal mm-hmm. and interest. Taxes are the real estate taxes that the municipality is going to um, collect from you. And insurance is to protect your home and the belongings of inside your home and your liability should someone get hurt in your home. These are mm-hmm. things that, um, you know, should be a fire or theft or any kind of damage to the house. The, ins- the, the mortgage company is going to require it, but you should have it anyway. Remember, the mortgage company 
wants complete protection, they're giving you a lot of money. And so they're, you're using the house as collateral. They want to know that the house is protected should something happen. And so you have to have insurance. And actually, both your real estate taxes and your insurance are paid by your mortgage company. Because a mortgage company doesn't want to find out you haven't been paying your real estate taxes and that the, the municipalities put a lien on your house. They don't want that to happen. Mm. So they make your mortgage payment include all four, P-I-T-I. Oh, and they that. make the real estate tax payments and the insurance payments on your behalf. So they know everything's good. Okay. Now, since we're talking about the mortgage company, now that can be a bank, right? Yeah. Like any of the banks that we see lining our streets. Yeah. But then there's also companies like Rocket Mortgage, Quicken Loans, yep. all of these. That this is, is this why you're saying mortgage company and not bank? Because it could be take many forms. It could be any of those. It's all okay. they're all gonna have the same general guidelines and this and requirements. Okay. And actually what's interesting is most it is not uncommon. In fact, I would say it's probably more common than not that the company that you get your mortgage from will sell your mortgage to another finance company. So you might find, and I had this happen with the house that we're in now, We've, we had our mortgage sold a number of times. And so we kept having to get letters that say, we have sold your mortgage to so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so sends me a letter. We just bought your mortgage from so-and-so. Your checks now have to go here instead of there. Mm -hmm. uh, and you got to notify the insurance company. That's okay, now you, you, know, you got to pay the check. It's, it's a little complicated, not that hard. Okay. But a lot of companies that issue mortgages don't actually service them they sell it to somebody else who services them. Okay. So, so we've got the PITI. So beyond PITI, which is a number that, you know, you're going in with in terms of your affordability calculation, realize your situation, be very honest with yourself about what you can afford. Those calculations will get you a number, but remember there are other expenses associated with homeownership. There's landscaping costs there's it's depending on you know even if you get a lawnmower there's still the fall cleanup and the spring cleanup are you going to do all that yourself who's going to put the mulch down and edge your beds garden beds whatever um pruning trees all that stuff and your utility costs are going to be higher if you're coming from an apartment you might be shocked <laughs> to realize what it costs to heat and electrify a home because your apartment may be, I don't know, 800 or 1,000 square feet, and your walls are all shared with other people, so you're well insulated from the outside. Mm. When you get a single-family home, it's much bigger, and it's exposed to the outside. So it, it can cost a lot of money. I mean, we have a, I'm going to say, you know, a little over 2,000 square foot home in the Boston area, and we, for heating purposes, go through eight or 900 gallons of oil in a year. And at three and a half dollars a gallon, you can do the math. It's going to cost you several thousand dollars a year just to heat the house. Uh, air conditioning is very expensive. So if you have central air, which a lot of people, you know, nowadays you almost have to have it. it. It makes for a very expensive electric bill. So I don't, I'm not going to go much farther than that, but I just want to kind of sensitize people that it's it's more than just PITI when you think about the added expenses of home ownership versus renting. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And some advice there that um, I've done in the past is you can actually call these utility companies and ask for the history of the cost of this specific address with the utilities. So for example, in Massachusetts, Eversource, you could call Eversource Electricity or Gas and say, at this location, what was the average monthly cost or the yearly cost? So you can get an idea of what that might look like. But of course, your usage might look different than the family's usage that's there. So you kind of have to consider that factor as well. So the metric, there's two numbers that are, I think forever have been kind of the guiding principles of underwriters. One is that your PITI should not exceed 28% of your gross income. All right. So gross income, that's the, that's your salary. That's before taxes are taken out, before you put away money for retirement, before you pay your health insurance. It's just your gross income Mm -hmm. that your cost of your home should not exceed 28% of that gross number. Okay. The second number is 33%. And, and, and sometimes as high as 36%. So we're in the 33 to 36% that all of your monthly debt service should not exceed that number, right? So if you're, if you're gonna buy, get a mortgage that hits 28% of your gross income, mm-hmm. then the lender is not gonna lend you money if you have other debts that you're paying off that cost you more than somewhere between five and 8% of your gross income. Like a car, finance, like a car, student loans. Student loans. Okay. Yep. Credit card debt? Credit card debt, yes. Okay. Correct. So what you can afford is typically 20% of your gross income, as long as the rest of your debts don't exceed another six to 8%. Uh, so the 33 and 36. Under, so yeah. from 28, it's somewhere between five okay. and 8% of your. Got it. No, right. So I'm doing the math right now. Yeah. So, myself. I mean, <laughs> if you, if you borrow at a rate lower than 28%, then that leaves room for more debt, right? If you borrow at 25%, at 25% of your gross income, then it leaves you eight to 11% of other debt service, right? Right, okay. So, but ultimately that's I kind see. of what dictates your affordability. I see. So let's just go back to that example we had at last episode of a $400,000 home that we would buy, right? So let's just take that now. We put 10% down. So we borrowed $360,000. Let's just assume our interest rate is three and a half percent, which by the way, by historical measures is very low, very, very low. I mean, we bought a house in Indiana. I think I, I think the rate was around eight and a half percent. That was considered pretty good at the time, <laughs> believe it or not. Wow. So three and a half percent, it's a 30 year fixed rate, right? So we're going to pay this over the course of um, 360 monthly payments. Mm-hmm. Let's assume that our real estate taxes are one and a quarter percent of the home value. It's actually, so it's not uncommon for a municipality to say, we, you know, $12.50 per thousand, which is 1.25%. It may not be the full value of your home. A lot of times they assess values at something less than the full value, but let's just say, so one and a quarter percent. And let's say your insurance on an annual basis would be about $1,200. So this is the that, PITI. This is the PITI. Now insurance can be, you'd be, you'd be amazed depending on where you live, how that can change. Um, I know people who live in Florida that because of hurricanes and being near the water that their 
homeowner, their, their homeowner's policy is like somewhere between seven and $10,000 a year. So $1,200 is kind of at the low end. It's a very safe place. There aren't a lot of um, risks there. And let's just assume because you only put 10% down, you're paying a, the PMI. One PMI is primary mortgage insurance. <laughs> and that's required when you don't put at least 20% down and you have to pay it until you have what's called 20% equity in the house. So assuming the price of the house doesn't change mm -hmm. or the value of the house doesn't change until you get to 20% of the value being yours and not the bank's you'd have to pay this PMI, which is roughly around 1%. So our principal and interest is $1,617. Our taxes on a monthly basis, 417. Our insurance is 100 and our PMI is 300. So our monthly payment is 2433. If you take, you say, okay, you multiply that by 12 and then you figure out what it, divide it by 28%, you get a little over $104,000 in gross income that you would need to afford that house. And that, if you're married, can be the income from both you and your spouse. Right. Right. And it can be, if you happen to have investments that pay dividends or whatever, the, you know, income isn't necessarily just your wages. If you have other sources of income, it's possible that they would be included. Okay. Um, when it so comes to think, when it's like bonuses and commissions, those are not as reliable and predictable. And so underwriters may only count a percentage of that money not all of it when i was in hr at a tech company i was actually the hr person that filled out that paperwork for mortgage companies that said ah. here's how much this person made and i would have to do that give that information for the last two plus years so i would yeah. do like you know this year up to this point and what is their bonus and then what did they make last year including bonuses and commissions i actually filled out that paperwork yeah by the way, you know, talk about, you know, what an underwriter wants to know. They also want to see that you have a good employment history, right? You, they like to see at least two years with the, with the most recent employer and that you're continuing to work there. But it's not, it's not mandatory. If you have a good work history without gaps, you know, that might be fine. Yeah. And um, I mean, in this economy, people are bouncing around. Right. So plus a lot of COVID layoffs, there was definitely yeah. some gaps there. So it yeah. could look a little bit. I mean, different. people move to take jobs. And so when they move, they get mortgages, but yeah. they, it's based on the fact that they had a good work history, Yeah. you know, up to that okay. point. So, okay. all right. So that's that. So let's just say you are at the limit, right? You're going to, you make $104,000 and you're going to buy this $400,000 house. That means that the rest, that 28 to the 33 cap, let's just say we're going to use 33% as our cap. Mm -hmm. Um, that means that your remaining debt can't exceed around 5,000, a debt service, that is your monthly payments, could not exceed a, a little over $5,000 a year. So that's a little over $400 a month, basically, Okay. that so you could be paying in car payments or student loans or whatever and still qualify. Okay. If your numbers go much higher than that in terms of other debt, then you're you're going to have to come down below the 28% number to qualify. Makes sense. Like a sliding scale. Yeah. And is this what a pre-qualifying underwriter looks at? Or is this when you actually I, go? You don't really get, I don't think an underwriter does pre-qualifying. Okay. Well, they might. It, it depends on how complicated your life is. Again, if you have bonuses and commissions, that might require an underwriter to, to look at it. If, you, if it's straightforward, like I said, I... And the market has changed. I mean, a lot of my experience goes back in time. It's not most, it's not recent in terms of being a buyer. 
but I never, I guess once I got a pre-qualifying letter, but um, I've also just told a realtor, here's what I make. And they say, and here's what I'm my price range. And they're yeah. like, okay, that works. I think just these days, given the competitiveness of the market, right. That realtors want that pre-approval letter and before I get they that. even entertain you. I understand. So, yeah. I understand. And as I understand it, the pre-approval process is pretty quick, pretty easy. It might take a week, two weeks, and you kind of just show a, you know, a paycheck, a bank statement, a, a yeah. offer letter for an employer. It or... is definitely not as rigorous a process as it will be when you actually apply yeah. for a mortgage. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, so, you'll be amazed what they ask for when you apply for a mortgage. <laughs> they want to see blood type, <laughs> years of pay stubs and W-2s and every like bank statement and investment or brokerage account statement for the last number of years. And God only knows what else. You know, it, it, what it's very, it's very thorough. What happens if I get to that point and I don't like have all of those things? Like I have employers that don't exist anymore and I can't I can't get those pay stubs. Well, like, I, well, what's going to, you, you might have, you should have the W-2. Hopefully you kept that as a record. I do. I do have all my tax materials yeah. since 2017. They're also going to ask you to allow them to get tax transcripts from the IRS. So if you, they're going to verify with the IRS what they see on the forms that you provide them. Mm -hmm. um, but they're very thorough. Okay. Yeah. So most of the time, sometimes you do the pre-qualifying yeah. Then you know where you're looking and you know what you can afford. So then you then you start shop. looking. <laughs> yep. I mean, I, I don't know if you said you haven't been a, a, a buyer in, in the recent decade. Um, but the only place I know is like just going on Zillow, just poking around. But I know there are other websites that are going to have some houses listed that Zillow might not have. You might have a family friend or realtor that could do some of this searching for you, or you, you know, find a realtor to do that for you. Right. So I'm, I have a fairly traditional outlook on this. I think it's good to work with a realtor because there's a, there is still a multiple listing service, which, which, which is where most of the houses end up. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, you probably want to supplement that with, things that may be on Redfin or, you know, Zillow's capturing everything. It's not that Zillow has some unique market mm -hmm. that realtors don't have access to, but. But realtors can like call other realtors and might know things that are to come or that's things the thing. that have they been They can hot oftentimes or... get insight into things that haven't come on the market yet. Yeah. That's really important. Um, you know, realtors often have open houses just for realtors before things get go public. So, oh. yeah, particularly within an office. Like if you go to Coldwell Banker, right? And a Coldwell Banker listing comes up, all the Coldwell realtors will come in and, and maybe other realtors too, I don't know. But there, there is this thing called realtor open houses where they go around and they see these things before the frenzy begins. Yeah, so they've technically toured the home before they get to show it to you. And right. then if a realtor knows what you're looking for, they yeah. can then say, oh, well, you know, I have something coming up right. in a couple right. of weeks. They, they know who they're working with and they're like, okay, I know these. this house is great for these three people. Let me tell them about it, you know? Okay, all right. So we've shopped around, we've gone to open houses, maybe we're working with a realtor. So if we haven't worked with a realtor, I think the answer to this question might look a little bit different. But now that I found something I want and I like. Now what? What do I do? Yeah, you um, you have to make an offer, and it's more than just I'll buy it for this price. You actually have to it. 
I think in Massachusetts, it's a pretty standard form. I know it's a standard form. It's probably true just about anywhere. So if you're working with a realtor, they'll help you with that form. Um, if you're not working with a realtor, I imagine you can get it from somebody. Um, but basically you're going to offer to buy it. You're going to say what price you're willing to pay. And you're going to also include all the contingencies to the offer. So if you want to do an inspection, your offer is going to say subject to a satisfactory inspection. You're going to apply for a mortgage. It's going to say subject to qualifying, you know, getting approved for the mortgage. Um, it's also a place where you want to, you know, say subject to including the washer and dryer or the stove or the, I mean, usually the stove stays, but you, you, you want to list these things out. You want to be pretty thorough. So there's no misunderstandings. Uh, refrigerators don't always stay with the house. So that's something you probably want to mention. And things like window treatments, those are expensive. And if you like what's there and they're probably not going to take them, but let's be clear, you want those window treatments to stay. All those things. And of all of these contingencies, like, do I work with my lawyer on writing this letter? Do I work with my realtor writing this letter? How do I know what contingencies I might add and what might be good or bad to include? Yeah. For the most part, the two big ones are inspection and mortgage approval. The other stuff is up to you, right? What, what is in the house that you want that may be removable? That's the big stuff. You don't need a lawyer to make an offer. Okay. The realtor can help you. Um, you can you can ask a lawyer to help you, but really, it's a standard form. You're going to specify in that offer letter probably uh, some dates as well. Mm -hmm. So, like how long the offer is good for, uh, how much time you're going to allow yourself to get the inspections done, and an actual closing date. You're going to specify that in the letter. So, in the offer letter. So. You kind of need to know some things. This is where a realtor can help you. An offer, you know, that includes a contingency for inspection is probably not going to give you more than a week, right? No one wants to take their house off the market for very long. So one of the things you'll discover when you, if your offer is accepted, is that all of a sudden you're running hundred miles an hour because mm -hmm. uh, you got to get everything going. You got to get the inspections going. You got to get that mortgage application in. You got to get the lawyer. All these things happen really quickly. Up to that point, you can take all the time you want. But once you get an offer accepted, then yeah, things happen quickly and you got to move quickly because you know, a week goes by and you haven't completed the inspection that that contingency becomes irrelevant. You're, you haven't raised any objections in the time frame with regard to inspection, then your contingency is no longer valid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I also, I have a couple of friends who've bought homes in the last couple of years, and I had two things that I learned from them that I want to share here. Um, one is I had a friend who actually bought a house in this market and the owner was, had multiple offers and this is very common. And they, the realtor came to them and said, another, another family offered 10 K more than you. If you don't bump up 10 K, you're going to lose this. And they said, well, you know, we're already willing to pay this much. So it, 10 extra thousand dollars on a mortgage what is that a couple dollars every month like let's just do it and so um i guess way an owner could be weighing multiple offers and that's one thing that you would have to anticipate is maybe having some wiggle room <laughs> with your offer amount 
Well, that's an issue. That's the thing you have to decide when you get that, when you figure out through a pre-qualifying process or whatever, what you can afford. The question is then what price range are you going to look in? Is it going to be at your limit or are you going to start something lower? Um, and a lot depends on the market you're in. You know, right now we're, we're in a market where people are bidding up prices, but there are times when asking prices are, are generally higher than selling prices in the end. So it just depends. Okay. The other thing I heard from a friend that they did was they actually included a personal letter to the owner, sort of like a love letter to the house in a way. <laughs> and they think that that got them <laughs> their foot in the door. Yeah. I've heard that a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think if you're, if you're going to buy a home from someone who's been in it a long time and they have a lot of memories that there is some element of um, the person who, or people who buy the house, you know, what, what is this, who, what's the life of this house going to be after we're gone. Yeah. And for some people that, that matters. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So we've got sort of the, the pieces of the offer and the offer letter. And I know you've, you mentioned in last week's episode, there's also a deposit that comes in here. Is yes. that a personal check, a certified check? I'm not sure. Because uh, a certified check would take extra time. Yeah. I don't know. I think a personal check, it's usually not a ton of money. It may be five or $10,000. It's something that basically shows you're serious. I, I could be wrong about that number, but it, that seems to be my recollection from years ago. Um, and it basics called earnest money. It's basically saying, Hey, we're serious. And that check goes with your offer. Your, the check goes to the realtor. They keep it in escrow. Escrow is kind of a, a place where money is kept until all parties have reached an agreement as to what should happen to that money. It's like limbo uh, for money. Yeah. Kind of in a safe limbo. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you negotiate, you come back and forth is usually a back and forth unless they accept your offer as is, they're probably going to counter. I mean, if you come in again, the market, it all depends on the market you're in. If you're in a market where people are bidding up the prices, then you, that's mm -hmm. probably what you'd have to do mm -hmm. in a, what I'll call a more normal market. Mm -hmm. uh, you may offer less than they're asking. And then there's counter offers and you kind of go back and forth. Yeah. And maybe your love letter to the house gets you a competitive offer, even though you might not be offering more than another offer. Who knows? Maybe money talks, you know, in this business, ultimately money talks, but if it's a tie, right. is two people that are willing to pay the same amount. That letter could make the difference. Yeah, that's true. So let's just say you're, you, you reach an agreement and the, and the offer is accepted. Okay. Now you have to get that inspection done within a, whatever time you agreed, it could be a week or 10 days, something like that. That would be um, you got to get the mortgage started because if you don't get approved for a mortgage in the time you allowed, you at least need to show that you started quickly and you didn't waste any time. So you need to get that process going. So it's nice to know kind of in advance, which companies might I put an application in with, you know, what are their rates? How are their terms? And kind of know that going in. So those are a couple things you got to do really quickly. Now in Massachusetts, it's kind of a two-step process. Your offer is accepted. Then you get the inspections done. And then there's a second document you sign, which is called the purchase and sale agreement. And that will be a date you'll have in your offer letter. Like, well, you know, inspections by this date, 
and then purchase and sale. At which time when you do purchase and sale, the only contingency you probably can include at that point is getting the mortgage approved. Everything else is behind you now. Mm-hmm. And so the price might've changed if you had to renegotiate based on the outcomes of the inspection. But mm-hmm. um, so that, that then sets uh, everything in stone, you know, if the closing date should change because maybe the closing date you chose wasn't the one that was workable for the seller, but you need to leave enough time for your approval process to get done for your lawyer's title search work to get completed and all that stuff. Typically about 45 days, I would say. So between purchase and sale and closing, you are just basically responding to tons of requests from your lender and your lawyer, mostly your lender. They're going to ask you for everything. We talked about that already. Uh, and then at some point you get an approval and when you say good to close and then, then that final day comes the final, it's like, it's the beginning of a new chapter, but it's the end of this crazy process and the closing happens and all that money goes from your bank and your bank account for the down payment. (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's another thing. I think when you do purchase and sale, you give more money. Mm. You might actually go up to like 10% of the purchase price or something like Mm. that. So there is a second check at purchase and sale. And then at closing, whatever money is left that you owe, that all comes out and you get the keys. You might, Mm -hmm. by the way, uh, on that day or the day before, you probably want to do a walkthrough, right? You're going to go into the house and make sure they're out. And they didn't destroy the place in the process of vacating. So everything needs to be in the same condition it was when you saw it or when the inspection was done, other than the obvious fact that none of the furnishings are there. So you do a walkthrough, make sure that you're still getting what you bargained for. Exactly. And then the closing happens and then you get the keys. Good. Helpful. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So another episode turning into a longer episode than we anticipated, but we know dad likes to give the long answer and all the details. And so I think that this was a lot of really valuable information. I know I can make a lot of sense of what this process looks like now. And we hope you, our listeners do as well. I think, you know, in last week's episode, I mentioned that this could be three episodes. I think for now we're going to leave it at two. And in a couple of weeks time, I might head to get a pre-approval letter and start shopping myself. So maybe we'll have some bonus episodes um, in the next couple of months where we might be able to revisit this and have a couple of what would dad do's around my situation as I begin the home buying process. So I think we've covered a lot over the last two episodes. We've covered quite a bit in this process. So I think that we will tie it off there and we'll see you next week. Bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Everything I Know I Learned From Dad. Please show your support for our podcast by dropping a review, subscribing to the show, and sharing it with others. We also invite you to email us questions you'd like to see answered in a future episode or share something valuable you learned from your dad. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.